Welcome to Rex's Bible Minute, a weekly video where we talk about Jesus, Christianity, and anything along those lines. Um, we are in week number 10 of our study of Revelation. This week we're looking at one of the most famous parts of Revelation. It's probably the part that's been preached on more than any other section in this letter, because it's one of those sections that it'll preach. Like Most of the letter of Revelation gets, gets kind of pushed this side, but this one... Uh, we're talking about the letter to the Laodiceans. So if this is your first time with us, you've never um, you've never watched any of these other studies or listened to them if you're a podcast person, um, go back and watch the others, especially week one. Like if you really want to look at this letter, uh, jump back to week one, catch that because it's all the background, it's all the context, and then jump forward to here. Um, but as always, the basics that you have to know before you read anything, especially the Bible, who wrote it, who they're writing to, and what was their agenda and the cultural kind of things that, that go along with that. So this was written by either John or one of his disciples named John, um, because the guy who wrote the, the Gospel of John, it's the theology is super duper similar. Um, the purpose that this was written for, and this is really important um, as you study the book of Revelation, is why. It was, it was written specifically to encourage Christians who were going through a period of suffering and had big question marks about, about what happens next. Like, are they going to be able to survive as, as the church? Uh, and so the, the entire thing is written to encourage them by giving them God's perspective on their current situation and by showing them that this is how things wrap up, that in the end, God is really in control. And in the end, everything is going to be made right by him because he is God. And this is kind of like a glimpse of what that looks like. We're not given super specifics, but we're given kind of the broad brush strokes of this is kind of what it is going to look like. But in the end, all you need to know is that God's got you. That, that's very encouraging to us. Um, and so we're in the very last, last of these letters. So the letter opens um, with John writing an introduction to the letter as a whole because Revelation is written as a letter. Um, and then he begins the story because apocalyptic literature um, always reveals something bigger than reality itself, um, a bigger reality than the one the writer is currently or the writer is currently experiencing. Um, and it does so in the form of a narrative of a story. So we have the intro to the letter. We have the intro to the story where John is on the island of Patmos. He turns around and Jesus is talking to him. And he says, listen, write down what you see and hear and send it to these seven specific churches in western Turkey. And then he goes through and he writes a letter to each one of these, these, these churches. Um, this is the first part of the outline of, uh, of, of Revelation, right? It takes place in three parts. We have the first part on the island of Patmos, the second part in the throne room of heaven, and the third part we'll get to. All right, so that being said, let's read it, uh, and we'll break it down. So the, the letter to the church in Laodicea. It says, write this to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is Jesus talking, telling John. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I've done well. I don't need anything. But you don't know that you were miserable, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This is my advice to you. Buy from me gold refined in the fire. That'll make you rich. And white clothes to cover yourselves and prevent your shameful nakedness being seen. And also healing ointment to put on your eyes so that you will be able to see. When people, 
when people are my friends, I tell them when they are in the wrong, and I punish them for it. So stir up your spirits and repent. Look, I'm standing here knocking at the door. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into them, and I will eat with them, and they with me. And this will be my gift to the one who conquers. I will sit them beside me on my throne, just as I conquered and sat with my Father on his throne. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So Laodicea, what is the deal with this city? Um, Laodicea, again, it's the last part of our, our, our travel through these seven cities in western Turkey that Jesus is specifically addressing here. Um, and it's kind of about three o'clock on the circle if you look on a map of the, these cities. Like it's, it's, it's down at the bottom, actually more like four o'clock, five o'clock. Um, but uh, Laodicea was a city that, uh, that has, has a lot going for it at this point in history. Um, now, I, I volunteer as a firefighter, and as such, I get to see some of the bad things that happen. Uh, and, and especially when, when we see natural disasters, when there's floods or tornadoes or, or anything along those lines, um, when you have a natural disaster like that, the, the U.S. government, either through the state or, uh, or the national level, they'll, they'll offer assistance to communities who really need it, right? Like if, if roads get washed out or homes get destroyed, if there is a certain criteria met, the government will step in and provide the funds because that's that's part of what their job is is to take care of people who their their own people who can't help themselves and so when you have a flood wash out you know a group of homes leaving an entire community with nothing well the government should step in and help that out right um and so the thing is i've experienced and watched it happen where people will lose everything but they don't meet the right criteria for help like they'll lose everything but not enough people lost everything you know what i mean like it's 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 heartbreaking sometimes. There's a lot of hoops to jump through, and this concept of the government providing aid for in the case of natural disasters, it's nothing new. As a matter of fact, way back in in the Roman times, uh, Philadelphia, that church that we looked at last week in 17 A.D., I mentioned that they they had an earthquake destroy their city, and in order to recover from that, Rome helped them. The city of Rome, the Empire of Rome, gave money to rebuild the city of Philadelphia. In 61 AD, another earthquake hit the Lycus River Valley. That's where Laodicea and Colossae and Hierapolis are all located. And specifically, Laodicea was destroyed. But Laodicea didn't get aid. You know why? Because Laodicea rejected it. Rome offered it, but Laodicea said, nah, we're good. We can take care of ourselves. Laodicea is a city that, as I said, has a lot going for it. It was wealthy. It was at the crossroads of, of several trade routes. It was the banking center for the region. Um, it was a place that, that, had, that was very affluent. It, it, at the center of all the cool things that a city wants to be the center of, it was. right. So it was wealthy. It was a financial center. It was the center of the of fashion industry. Their farmers had developed a, a black wool. like They had bred sheep to have a black wool that became very, very famous. And so everybody wanted to have this black wool and have these black garments made out of Laodicean wool. So they were center of the fashion industry, the banking industry, the financial industry. On top of that, they were a city that was known to have a really well, really good medical school. Like not every city had a medical school, let alone one that was considered really, really good. And this school specialized uh, in ophthalmology. I know it's crazy to think 2,000 years ago that they were studying this kind of stuff, especially with the limited amount of information they had. 
But it was a school that was known for turning out doctors. People would come from all over the world to train to be a doctor, a physician here. And then they were also really famous for this eye salve that they had come up with through their ophthalmology studies, these things to help people see and to fix eye problems. The only thing Laodicea lacked was a water source. You know, Laodicea was on the Lycus River, in the Lycus River Valley, but where they were, the, the river wasn't very strong through there. As a matter of fact, it was so weak that during the summers it would dry up. And so they had to go about and figure out another water source, kind of like Los Angeles did. Los Angeles, prior to the early 1900s, was, was kind of a, a small city. Like, it wasn't very big, and it was very limited because it didn't have any water. And so what they do? They piped water in from someplace that had water. That's still what they do to this day. And that's exactly what Laodicea did. To the north, there was a city called Hierapolis. And Hierapolis is famous for um, its hot springs that were, were renowned for, for what basically what every hot springs are known for, for healing properties. Um, but they had lots and lots of water, and it was very chemically and minerally rich water. And so they had to pump it in, right? And so the aqueducts are still there to this day that the Romans built to pump in water from Hierapolis to uh, Laodicea. And on the other end, you had Colossae. And Colossae was a city right near some mountains that were snow-capped. And so the Colossae had these really fresh, cold um, mountain springs and rivers feeding it. And so when in 61 AD, when that earthquake hit, Colossae wasn't rebuilt. It was destroyed, and it basically was stayed in ruins um, for a long time. I mean, it's crazy to think about that when we have a letter in the book in the New Testament called Colossians, written to the Christians that were living in these ruins, kind of puts it in perspective. Um, and it also is, if you read the first chapter of Colossians, you know that that letter was meant to be passed on from Colossae to Laodicea. So there's a connection there, give you more context. Um, but but basically, um, Laodicea had water piped in from there as well. And so we get the image of this city that had everything going for it, right? It was wealthy, it was influential, it was powerful, it wasn't reliant on the government to survive. Like, it was a city that could handle its own. There weren't any problems that it couldn't figure out on its own. It ran out of water? Well, okay, we'll go get more water. And it did. Like, it was a city that, that we see is just like, it's a place people would want to live. It's a place people would want to associate with. And so our letter starts out, Jesus says... I am the one who was in the beginning. I am the amen, the truth. That's what amen means. I am the beginning of God's creation. Basically, he is saying he is the, the, the one who creates. He is the one who ends. He is God. So keep this in mind, because that's going to come up here in a little bit. And then if you remember our pattern from the way these letters go, next there is the I know. I know what you are doing well. And if you paid attention, you'll know that crickets. It wasn't anything positive said. This, is, this letter was written, and you hear Jesus's tone of voice that he is, he's both sad and angry at the same time. And so he addresses them in a very personal way. Like the references he makes and the things that he says all directly reference things about Laodicea. And so if you remember from the pattern next, he'll go to, but I have this against you. And he says, I know your works. I know the things you're doing, and you're neither hot nor cold, and I'm going to vomit you from my mouth because you're neither hot nor cold. He's basically saying he's like your water sources. The benefits of the water from Hierapolis, those hot springs, 
are the heat. You can't drink that water. It's too minerally. It'll make you sick. The benefits from the water uh, over in Colossae is, is its coolness, that mountain water, that freshness. It's become lukewarm and tepid since it was piped in by the time it gets to you. He says, you're like your water. The benefits of it are completely gone, and I don't want anything to do with it. See, Jesus is saying he is disgusted by their Christianity. They think they're great. I mean, they really do. They think they have everything you need. He says, you think you're rich. You think you have all you need. And, and it's this critique of itself. He's saying that you're, that smug attitude that, that rejected Rome's help has, has infected the Christians there. He says, you guys think you're good. You think you're well off. But you're actually miserable, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And they don't even know it. Really, if you think about it, this is the most dangerous position for a Christian or any person to be in. To be in desperate need of help, but to be completely impervious to it because you don't, you're convinced of otherwise. You think you're fine. The worst patients are the ones that don't believe anything is wrong. This is the most dangerous place a church or a person can be in, especially when it comes to their faith. I mean, it's, it's, there, there's actually a documented um, effect, a principle, or however you want to call it, that called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And it basically is the, a person who has lax ability will think they don't. A person who thinks they know it all won't realize how much they don't know. He says this, this, this church thinks they have it all together and they have completely missed the mark. And the only way to help somebody like that is with drastic measures. There's no like hints can be given to figure this out because they'll never pick up on it. You can't be necessarily be uh, kind about it or subtle about it because they'll never catch on. They think everything is fine. They think they're doing great when the reality is they're in desperate need of help. And so Jesus says, you think you're rich, but the only gold, the only wealth that counts is what's given by me. So you need to come to me for the wealth. Don't seek the wealth of the world around you, in your banks, in your trades. I have the only wealth that counts. He says, you think you're well-dressed in your fancy black wool, but you're walking around naked. You need the only, I'm the only one who gives clothes that truly cover your nakedness, your shame. Your spiritual weakness. I'm the only one that can cover that. He says, I'll give you white robes. If you remember, white means purity. It means victory. Jesus is saying the only way you, you conquer anything is, is through me. You're walking around naked, acting like you're in the best clothes in the world. He says, you think your medicine will help you see your famous eye cream. But only, but, but only the salve I give you, only the eye ointment I give you will actually let you see things as they truly are. I mean, is, it, is Jesus just being harsh? There's a story that uh, uh, Tom Wright quotes in his commentary on this. He, he says there was a Mother Teresa was famously praying to Jesus one day, and she, she said, why do you make me suffer so? Like she was praying about the, the hardships she was going through, and she really was going through them. And the story goes that Jesus replied to her, and he said, this is how I treat all my friends. And... Cheekily, Mother Teresa replied back, well, no wonder you don't have very many. But the point is, Jesus disciplines those he loves. The book of Hebrews tells us that, and in verse 19, he tells us that. He says, when people are my friends, I tell them when they're in the wrong, and I punish them for it. So stir up your spirits and repent. 
if the house is burning down, it is cruel to not raise a kerfuffle, right? If somebody's about to do something that will seriously injure or kill them, the cruelest thing you can do is be nice. Jesus is being harsh because it's, he knows it's the only thing that's going to shake them out of this dangerous place that they're in. I mean, there's not even a remnant here. In other churches that he was had a lot of negative things to say about, he mentions a remnant. Hey, there's still a group of people there who get it. Listen to them, and those people need to step up and, and try to save their brothers and sisters. He doesn't. There's none of that here. This church is completely lost, basically. Their arrogance has, has completely blinded them. And on top of that, it's embarrassing, right, to think that they have everything they need, that they are fully self-sufficient. It's embarrassing when you consider God's cosmic plan, that... That, that God knows there's nothing we can do. The whole reason Jesus came is because we are not sufficient in any way. You know, my little four-year-old, he likes to do tricks. Like, he likes to show me things, you know, as kids do. You know, they, they figure out how to do something, and they, they show off to mom and dad. And it's awesome. I love it. But, you know, he'll come up and be like, Dad, look at this jump I can do on my scooter. And he'll come, and, like, he'll, like, kind of jerk his shoulders, but, like, he won't actually come off the ground. And he thinks he just jumped 30 feet in the air, and he acts like, isn't that cool, Dad? And I'll be like, yeah, man, you did awesome. But the reality is, like, compared to what an actual trick would be, it's nothing. It's kind of embarrassing if a grown-up did that. That's what Jesus is saying. They're, they're embarrassing themselves by claiming these things, that they're fine, that they're wealthy, that they, they're clothed, that they're pure, that they're, they're all these great things. No, he says it's embarrassing. You guys need to wake up because you're blind. And so he gives them this solemn warning and a promise. He says, look, I'm standing here knocking at the door. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. And this will be my gift to the one who conquers. I will sit them beside me on my throne just as I conquered and sat with my father on his throne. So this is another one of those passages where it gets preached a lot. You know, stand at the door and knock. Will you let me in? And it's typically taught that that Jesus is just saying, like, hey, I'm ready to, let me, open your heart to me. And, like, awesome, yes, yeah, spot on, truth, accurate, definitely needed. But it's not what it means. <laughs> like, it's it's fine to preach that, but it's it's not what this passage means. Um, because in the context, you don't you don't knock on a neighbor's door. You know, if you look at the Gospels, who, who does the knocking? The guy who owns the place. Like, he's been far away, and he comes back to his own home. And the servant who has been given a task is patiently waiting. This is the story of Jesus coming back to his own house, to his own kingdom. Who is the church? Who is the body of the church? Who is the head of the church? It's Christ's body. It's Christ's kingdom. Him knocking is not a knock on a stranger's door, a place he doesn't know. No, he's knocking on his own door. And this church has shut him out. And he's saying, let me in. Because you see, immediately he says, like, if you let me in, I'll eat with you. I'll party with you. This is their culture. It was huge. It was a big deal to have, have parties and, and feasts. But in the verse, he says he is the, the master of the, of, of the party, of the feast. You don't, you don't become the master of a feast in somebody else's house. Like, it's, you do that in your own home. Jesus is saying to this church, you have shut me out of my own house. Let me back in. He says, and then in the last part, he says, to the one who conquers, I will sit them on my throne, just as I sat on my father's throne. This is another place that should absolutely blow your mind. This concept that is what is done for Christ is done for us. This is another place we see what that means. 
As Christ was raised from the dead, we are raised from the dead. As Christ is sat on the throne, we will be sat on the throne. We're, we, this is just another insight that, that Christ has stuff for us to do. What, what, who sits on the throne? Rulers. Now, we like to think of rulers being like kings, but the reality is everybody who has authority is a ruler. You know, you have authority over something. You rule over that thing. And so I think, like, this this ruling, my guess, this is just my guess, okay? This is not anywhere in the Bible. You can't go look this up. But my guess is uh, that that on the other side of Judgment Day, We'll have things to do. That creation will look a lot more similar to this current life than we we like to believe. You know, we like to have this middle ages kind of spiritualized, bodiless, floating on clouds kind of thing, where everything that you've ever wanted comes true. Like, I think we'll have work to do. I think that that we will be creative. We will be given tasks. We will have things to do. And so, uh, but but at the end of the day. It doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter what this means exactly. It should just encourage you because that's the whole point of all of this is you should be encouraged that as you face difficulties in life and you face the brokenness of the world and the evil of this world and the evil of other people, when we experience natural disasters and we experience helplessness and weakness, know that God has you. Don't get wrapped up in, in the minutiae of this world. Don't get wrapped up in being comfortable or being wealthy or fashionable or anything like that. Don't get wrapped up in any of that. What you should be wrapped up in is what happens after Judgment Day. That should be where your focus is. Don't get focused on this world. That is a waste of time. Be focused on creating God's kingdom here in this world, the things that will last into the next world into the new creation. that The good lives on. That's what the Bible teaches. Be focused on those things. Don't be focused on the things that go away when we, when we die. And so he wraps up by saying, let the, anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And so just to kind of summarize all the seven churches, we see that, that Jesus sees the weaknesses. Like we like to preach and teach that, hey, once you become a Christian, there's, all your flaws are gone. All your sins are gone. All the things that separate you from God are gone. But Jesus still sees our flaws. He still sees our weaknesses. He says, listen, I'm not going to give up on you. But you got to aim for the, my standards. you got to aim for God's standards. And so on one hand, he critiques churches as a whole. That He doesn't critique individuals. He only names one guy in it, and it was a martyr, right? Like... And he named some false prophets as well. But as far as like the churches go, like he, he addresses them as whole. And so our churches as wholes can be responsible for sin, for causing problems. But when it comes time to fix these things, who does he address? Individuals. He says, to the one who conquers. And so we have these, the church, churches are held accountable for their sins as a whole, but then on the individual level, that is where Jesus tells them what they need to do better. Here's what they need to change. And he, he, he words it in a way that it is on an individual level. That means it's your responsibility and my responsibility. And the only way churches are changed is if we, on a daily basis, make Christ the focus of our lives. When we focus on being conquerors, because that's what he says in every single one, to the one 
who conquers, to the one who remains faithful to Christ, to the one who lives life with Christ as the center of it, who does their best to aim for God's standards for every part of their life, to, to that one, that is conquering. We are faithful. We are loyal. Christ truly is the king of our lives. When we do that, that is when our churches change. Because you know as well as I do that there's no such thing as a perfect church. That churches are broken, that they cause harm, that they do damage in people's lives, that they push people away from Jesus, they create barriers to Jesus, that churches can be very, very messed up. Some churches can even be evil. I wouldn't even call them a church at all other than that's what they claim to be. But the only way to fix those churches is each and every person that makes up that church focuses on conquering every day of their life. As always, if you have any questions, reach out. I hope that these seven letters uh, have been encouraging to you and convicting to you as well. If you don't reach out to me before then, I'll see you next week. (laughs) 